Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and my British brother, he, the man steering the mighty DailySportsCar.com ship, former male exotic dancer, stripper extraordinaire turned reporter, Graham Goodwin. Those days are behind me. That's the reporting, not the stripping. Uh, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And delight to be back on the Weekend Sports Cars. And particularly delight, uh, that second week on the trot, MP, that uh, we've been together on this one. Back to where it started and where it should always be. And if it can't, then we definitely thank your young Jedi, Stephen Kilby from DSC, for standing in for me. Always easy to find Graham in the paddock. Just look for the glitter trailing oh, behind hang on a him. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. We've got to say happy birthday, Stephen Kilby, because it is his 25th birthday. And you know what that means? He can actually get a high car. Wow. And, you know, he might be uh, transitioning out of diapers, too. I mean, Ooh. it's so cute. I love it. I love it. All right. We are going to do our best. This is going to be a high revving episode. Why? got about an hour and 23 minutes maybe before i have to leave so let's see how far we can get in our multi-categorian show not a word another, yes another new word yes exactly as the official selector of which category we begin with each week mr goodwin where are we starting we're this week Going to go with Weck Aslam's Elmsako, the world of ACO racing, which traditionally MP means that you start to serve a couple of questions at me, like a frenzied tennis player coming out of a major hip operation. Me, word talk at you regarding the WEC Asian Le Mans series, European yeah. Le Mans series, and whatever the heck ACO is. We're going to start with Lance Snyder, who says, can there be a moratorium on, quote, interested or looking at hypercar stories? For, like, ever? Uh, for frack's sake, it seems like every week multiple someone say they're thinking about what he's calling chaos car. It says, hashtag me personally, the official official hashtag of the Marshall Pro Podcast. Hashtag me personally, it gets old. When cars are tested, customers signed. Great. Otherwise, blah. What says you? Uh- well, I, I'll tell you what, Lance, I sort of understand exactly where you're coming from. i just say this, as we've said before, um, use the quality test. If the words could and might feature heavily in those stories, then the reality is, taint real, and certainly not yet. Uh, the reality is, Tota, yes. Aston Martin Valkyrie, yes, probably four cars, maybe more, who knows. Um, Glickenhaus, increasingly looking like yes, and uh, thanks very much, Jim. I know you're listening as well. Um, Jim, popping a couple more nuggets our way. Beyond that, who knows, I think is the honest answer. We've uh, seen now the stories in the French media about Oraca and their search for a customer-led program, which might, might not feature the word Peugeot uh, on the nose. Let's wait and see, and let's wait and see whether or not the partner for that might or might not be Rebellion or somebody else or not at all. Um, But the reality is we are, as they say, where we are. Um, We are in that transitional period, not just for the WEC on Hypercar from LMP1, but also, of course, for IMSA into DPI. And as we said on last week's show, MP, there are some pretty 
significant moves in the background to see whether or not we can't get an altogether more sensible world view here. I'll again reiterate what my view is. If you're going to go down the road of a top formula that requires the level of balanced performance injection into it to make it work, then there is a simple solution that presents itself. Apply that same process, come one, come all, and let's let's have you know, one of those gatherings around the sports car campfire. Uh, I don't, I'm talking about Bicolas, by the way. Uh, there's gatherings about the, the sports car bonfire. That's not the campfire. Uh, that's dumpster fire, just for clarity. That's the Bicolas. Um, uh, and, you know, and the reality there is I think we might might be seeing somewhere on the horizon a light at the end of the tunnel. Insert other metaphors here, the opportunity for a bit of common sense in the top level of sports car racing worldwide. Let's wait and see. Another official hashtag of the Marshall Pro podcast. Hashtag. Let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Yeah. I, belie- I believe that's actually going to be on your gravestone. Graham Goodwin. <laughs> Birth year dash. Let's wait and see. All right. We're going to go to James Hewitt, who says, as questions go, this might not be the best. Eh, I haven't submitted any, James. That, that would definitely be the bottom. So you're good there. It says, when it comes to the Asian Le Mans series, Graham, is this the last year we will see the 2016 LMP2 cars running in the amateur subclass? Because these cars aren't exactly getting any younger, are they? None of us are, James. None of us are. The answer at the moment is as yet unannounced and undetermined and undecided. But that's because people running the Asia Le Mans series are very sensible. And what they're going to look at is whether or not they've got a class that's sustainable and is adding something to the show. What we're going to see for this coming season starts at the end of November in Shanghai. Yes, I get to go to Shanghai twice this year. Um, is a mix between the top class, Pro-Am class, um, with the current spec of Gibson-engined LMP2s. And I'm expecting um, somewhere in the middle single figures of those and probably a not dissimilar number of the AM cars, which are the pre-2017 Judd and Nissan engine cars, principally Ligiers, but there will be, I think, what is now the only available Orica uh, for Orica 05 uh, involved there too. Um, I agree, they're not getting any younger. They have, however, provided some good racing. And I think if Cyril Teshval and his team found that moving into next season, there was the opportunity to have a similar number um, in that subclass and it provided good racing, there's no reason to retire them just yet. Of course, the preferred option, I think, would be to transition to the fully Gibsonized uh, LMP2 class, perhaps with two subclasses within that. But let's wait and see. Again, let's wait and see what the numbers look like this year and what the paddock is telling him for next year. As for numbers overall in the Age of Le Mans series, I am told at the moment they're looking pretty encouraging. Uh, I think we are probably talking a significant number between 20 and 30 uh, across the what will now be four classes with GT3 cars, LMP3 cars, and the two different LMP2 classes. And I am thoroughly looking forward to all of that. If we're talking closer to 30, that would be approaching IMSA numbers for its regular WeatherTech Championship races, not the big endurance rounds where we tend to have inflated car counts but that would be having seen what it was in its early stages that would oh, yeah. be phenomenal 
Well, that, that's, I think, a reflection of two or three things. One is um, the the uh, the appeal of those Le Mans entries should not be underestimated. It's certainly what's been boosting the uh, the takers from Europe at a time when it is more difficult for those LMP teams in particular to catch the attention of the selection committee. Uh, it is a better series. There's no doubt about that. The, the appeal uh, of the series, the way those race meetings are run, the fantastically good-looking English guy they've got on TV comms. I know he's a big uh, he's a big. Uh, draw particularly for the ladies i'm not uh, english no no you know oh, someone no. else apologies <laughs> um uh, but also it's been a, it's a it's a, a great job that's been done by the organizing team to get that message across that uh you know we're beginning to see now and i think we're going to see another step forward this year uh this season rather with asian teams moving forward there are some really good surprises to come across the grid uh, in terms of teams that you will be expecting to see uh, in the Asia Le Mans series this year that perhaps you haven't seen Asia Rules Racing before. Awesome. Let's go to Stephen Gate, who says, have you heard any whispers yet regarding potential drivers for the Aston Valkyrie project? Hashtag me personally. I think we can see Jensen Button there. Has he decided against Super GT for the foreseeable future? Seems like he's looking towards maybe a DTM drive. Could he dovetail Aston DTM and WEC and Hypercar? Well, he could. Uh, I've not heard uh, Jensen link with it, but that uh, edges towards, uh, Stephen, you talk about the R Motorsport effort. Of course, they are the operation behind the uh, Aston Martin DTM. Uh, effort which has got nothing whatsoever to do with the Aston Martin Works team by the way Uh, but of course they are the other party involved in bringing potentially a second pair of Valkyries to Hypercar Jensen the last time I spoke to him he's still very interested indeed in endurance racing thoroughly enjoyed his time in Super GT I think would have enjoyed his time more at LMP1 had the EOT last season not been as far off as it clearly was. Uh, but I think if he had a bit more assurance that he could be in uh, a competitive package, it wouldn't take that much to get him back. Um, you know, at the moment, he's enjoying taking some time, uh, some little time away with his new family, and good luck with that, Jensen. But uh, could he be involved? Yes, he could. Could it be some other of the Aston Martin factory drivers involved? It could. Will it be some of the old motorsport guys? I'm sure it absolutely will. Might we see some people from Red Bull Racing? Well, that's a mouth-watering prospect, isn't it? But the great thing at the moment is we're still some way away. I think those kind of those rumours, that speculation, are more to the point people beginning to edge out uh, publicly and say, I am in talks. Those moments are not that far away now. We won't have very much longer to wait to find more of those strands emerging from ether. Brilliant. I'd love to see good old, I guess he's a a transplanted Brit, but he's living in Southern California and has for a little while. So I guess maybe we'll claim him as one of my own. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm very English. Very English. Fair point. Fair point. Child born in California though. So uh we got him. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) Motorsport Matty says, do you think Toyota can recover from the generally negative attitude most fans have towards them? from the last couple of WEC seasons. They supported the series when everyone else left, yet they seem to receive most of the criticism for that. Not that it matters to them from a financial perspective, but nobody wants to be hated. 
an interesting one. Yeah, it is an interesting one. I don't quite see it. I completely get where you're coming from. I'd be interested in your take here, uh, MP, as someone who's not generally in that paddock. I don't see any shortage of people clambering around those cars at autograph sessions, and certainly the outlook and the attitude of the Toyota team towards the fan base has been exemplary. Um, I don't see it. I think people get it. I think, uh, you know, whilst there are be those do tend to let's be face let's face it be the ones maybe a little noisier on social media than others that have got that attitude to it the alonso episode had its ups and certainly its downs i think in terms of some of the purist fans but i think there's a lot of people that do get it and do understand just how special that effort is it is not their fault that the their principal opposition uh, disappeared into the ether and we are only just making baby steps at the moment into the success handicap system that's produced some exciting moments at the start of fuji we're going to see those values uh, confirmed for shanghai very soon um, and I think we might see, um, again, some spectacular, uh, spectacular ac- action at the very start of the WC race in China and potentially beyond. Let's wait and see. I hope there's not negativity towards them. This is a company that's invested and invested heavily in bringing what I'll repeat again um, is the by far the most technologically advanced race car in the world and the fastest sports car there has ever been. And for that, they get massive plaudits from me. I'd say they are victims of incompetence by the sanctioning body they are aligned with. I think the frustration some fans might express might unleash that on Toyota, Graham. But I would Mm -hmm. say the origination of that would not be from anything Toyota has done, but more from, okay, well, you are the the last survivor of LMP1 hybrid. The series has said they are now going to balance, make things equal. They have not in any way. And so keep in mind, I think for the average fan, the person who's not stuck in reading DSC every day and racer and whatever other, hardcore sites, those who just enjoy tuning in aren't getting stuck into all the minutiae. I don't know how many of them would care. Granted, I don't know how many of those people actually exist. The majority of sports car fans that I know are truly engaged about a thousand percent. And so I think for those folks, I think it just might be a case of backlash, whatever, again, whatever percentage of those folks that might harbor ill will, I think it might stem from the series itself being completely ineffective in creating that competitive racing environment for a couple of years now so that in the end we know unless something truly drastic or strange happens, Graham, we know who is going to win the next race overall and the one after that, just as we've known the previous race and last year and so on hasn't been a question And so I think that might be the thing that's wearing on folks a little bit. But I can't, like you, blame Toyota for being the ones to continue turning up and trying to do their best and achieving their best, all while welcoming further sanctions, further reductions and this and that and the other, taking things away to try and create, I'm using air quotes, parity here. Uh, yeah, the the only other quick example I'd give was yep. 
in the American Le Mans series. I'm trying to think the exact year. Was it 2007, maybe, when it started? 2008? I think 2007 and 8, when after Aston Martin had pulled out with their factory um, GT1 cars. And Corvette said, well, this is what we do. We can't control how many cars are in this class. We're going to keep turning up. And they ended up racing themselves. And it was a question of which Corvette was going to win. And so that was also a foregone conclusion. And yet, I don't recall any massive backlash. Uh, if anything, it was, hey, America Le Mans series, get your ass in gear and go find another manufacturer to at least create competition between two brands. Uh, but the actual team itself, I don't recall catching any real heat. So might just be a, a slightly different situation where, uh, the WC has seemingly promised to create something they've been unable to create, and maybe that's been the thing that fans are getting bored of. I'm, I'm going to add one other counterpoint in here to the initial question. It's not I dismiss it in any way. I don't dismiss the question whatsoever. But look at the response that Toyota and the other LMP1 teams got at Sebring. Uh, there's no doubt at all that the fact the LMP1 cars were there on the WC grid certainly put people on the gate. And a very large number of people I spoke to in and around the paddock were just blown away by the cars. So I think the answer is I get it. There is certainly some cynicism around. I don't think, though, it's as widespread as perhaps some people who do follow that minutiae through social media uh, think it is. Yes, there's that feeling. I don't think it's all-encompassing. And certainly, if it is it is a widespread feeling, Toyota don't deserve it. I absolutely agree with you on that, MP. Let's go to... Where shall we go next? Uh, we're going to go to... Justin Trock, uh, JTrock71, says, Last year there was a game studio uh, that said they were releasing an officially licensed WEC game, and they've oh. been silent since. Any news on officially licensed games for either the WAC or IMSA? Seems like an underutilized market for both. And then he also adds, Also heard the Nissan DPI was being scanned by iRacing? Question mark. And I always enjoy questions that are phrased like that, because... It asks a question, you asked a question if you've heard something. So I think only you could answer that, Justin. <laughs> well, the answer the answer to the question on WC if I've, I've heard absolutely nothing in terms of IMSA. Likewise, not a lot, other than the fact that um, I must admit in my uh, one or two of my idle moments on the lengthy flights I take, I do play a game on uh, my iPhone called Real Racing 3, which does have both uh, IMSA DPIs um, and GTD cars in it, as well as uh, some of the more recent uh, LMP1 hybrids in various aspects of that game. So those those models and those uh, things are available, albeit certainly that's not a simulator. Um, it certainly doesn't uh, offer the, how can we put this, immersive experience, um, and neither does it reflect uh, reality in terms of some of the, how can I put this, adventurous corner, corner lines I, see, I, I can take with some of those vehicles at various tracks. Uh, but uh, no, I've heard nothing about uh, official license game from the WEC doesn't mean it doesn't exist just means to say that they've not told me about it same here I'm fascinated though to learn that you play a racing game on your phone on flights that's kind of cute I do I, I do I would have never known <laughs> uh, let's see uh, where should we go Stathis Coco hey pal thanks for always sending in great stuff 
He asks, what's the future of GTE? Car numbers have decreased, but the racing is still exciting. Is there anything on the cards to create a new set of rules? Are they waiting to finalize the whole car, car, hypercar, DPI 2.0 thing in the coming months? Also says, asks, is Yeso considering ideas from class one? As you hinted, Mr. Goodwin. Also asks, any idea when the next generation cars are at the track? So tell us everything about what's happening in the future. Okay, right. Let's uh, tell you the class one thing for starters. That was that came from a story on a completely different news organ than we would normally uh, comment on. That talked about IMSA officials having attended the Hockenheim DTM uh, finale. I believe as guests of BMW. Uh, that's not the first time we've had IMSA's attention drawn to class one uh, by Jens Market. Happened at Sebring, and. Uh, Senior sources within the championship were then very clear to me that Class 1 was not something they were interested in, um, that uh, the aspect of Class 1 that did interest them was the prospect and the the, the, uh, the options that were opened up by the use of common parts. And I know in particular, uh, Jens Market is keen to draw their attention to the common hybrid system that Class 1 is likely to, uh, to include. Um, The question around GTE and Class 1, I simply am opening that up for a discussion, which is don't assume that looking at Class 1, which at the moment is what's uh, where DTM and where Super GT are heading, would necessarily only be looked at for a, uh, as an alternative to the top class. But why, if you've got a factory-backed GT class that at the moment is struggling for new blood, would you not look perhaps at that as a viable alternative uh, in the, in the you know, near to medium-term future? Does that mean it's happening? No, it absolutely doesn't. What can we tell you about what's going on in the background? Well, you know, they've got the new Corvette C8R. We know that Ferrari are looking to a further evolution of the 488. As their next step forward, Porsche have got their brand new version of 911 RSR on board. The Aston Martin is in only its second season. And then there's BMW. Who knows? Um, I believe there is talk that there is something in the background with another manufacturer meow look at that i I don't know what that is it's not the brabham um uh, idea that you know they're heading now towards potential for having a look at hypercar uh with brabham whether or not that comes to fruition we'll we'll wait and see but i believe there is at least talk in the paddock that there might be another manufacturer taking a look at it uh joshua ponce adds a question to the item presented by stathis asking if you know about anything with whatever upcoming gte slash gt3 regulations that might welcome hybrid power for the first time um the inevitability is that it's it's got to be a subject for discussion it absolutely has to be because that's where in terms of electrification, the marketplace is going. But it, there are two two things at the moment, relevance and cost control. And here's the problem. The two are pretty incompatible. So, um, yes, it's been talked about. Uh, certainly, it's been talked about in my hearing uh, with several different uh you know, uh, race organizing bodies. If you want to look at what GT3 is looking at at the moment, I, th- I would urge you to look at what um, Stefan Rattel unveiled 
at the Spa 24 Hours in terms of their edging towards the new technology. And it most certainly is not traditional race events. What they're looking for is more experiential events, high-end events with um, new technology coming forward to tease their way into that marketplace to make sure that the relevance of their product is maintained uh, as we kind of evolve towards a very different looking marketplace for for cars but i don't think you're going to see uh, gt3 cars with hybrid power anytime soon as far as gt is concerned not hearing anything immediately in prospect for that. Uh, but let's just wait and see what, what happens in terms of response to the fact that the, the gene pool in GTE at the moment is at the bottom end uh, of late of, that, uh, of the numbers game. Let's wait and see what emerges. Going to move to where shall we go? Uh-huh. I've got a couple of fun ones here, actually, as we... Ramp down ever so slightly on Weck, Aslam, Elms, and Aco. Uh, let's go to Stephen Gate again. Says it was discussed last week that Suzuka is being considered as a potential round for the WEC, given the track is Honda owned. I am am I reading too much into this, thinking the big H could be hypercar bound in the near future? And I know we have another question in here similar along those lines. Yeah. It's this. This is actually a story uh, for Racer and for DSC from Stephen Kilby. Happy birthday again, Stephen, um, who sniffed out the fact that uh, teams um, of the WC teams have been polled on two things. One is which of the current um, circuits on the program on the uh, on the calendar uh, would they rank and in what order, and two that there was a list given as part of that process. Um, and they were asked to rank those in order of preference, and these are other newer returning circuits that the WEC might or might not choose to come back to, and you're absolutely right on that list of eight. If you want to see the rest of the list of eight, by the way, story is still on Racer on DSC, uh, that Suzuka was on that list, and it does stand out as being an odd one to be there for several reasons. One of which is, of course, it's owned by Honda, uh, whereas Fuji is owned by Toyota, Um Toyota have got a brand new car for next year, so it would seem odd, wouldn't it, uh, that you would move from the home circuit of a contender in your top class to the home circuit of a manufacturer not currently represented on the grid. Um, I have nothing further to offer other than this. Um, If it is linked in with some Honda interest, don't assume it's hypercar. Remember what I've just said about GTE. Am I telling you that that's what's happening? I'm 100% not telling you that's what's happening. Am I offering an opinion that that could be uh, something for debate? It could well be. We know Honda have looked at the top class before, and the fact they've had a um, a customer offering in the top class in WC history back in 2012 with the ARX03B. Is that right, I think? Um, The one we had with… I believe so. JRM Stracker. JRM and Stracker had it. And oddly enough, one of those cars uh, I spotted um, was actually out uh, testing ahead of some classic racing outings. Um, I think we're Christian Pescatori trying the car out uh, last just this week. But uh, the XJRM car. But 
Um, am I telling you Honda are interested? No. Have I uh, heard anything that, that, that specifically cites they're interested? No. Am I telling you they're interested in hypercar? No. Am I telling you they're interested in GTE? No. Was Suzuka on that list? Yes. Uh, would there be a reason behind them being on that list? Yes. Is it definitely linked in with a potential factory program? No. That's as much as I can tell you right now. That's a lot. So Isn't it? It is. That you're good at saying words about stuff. Uh, I would say, by the way, one of the things that certainly is on the agenda is there is the open question about whether or not uh, the WC calendar should expand with an additional race. So let's wait and see what comes out from that. It is fair to say that I don't think they were very happy that that list was out in the public domain. Um, that's one. I'm sure there'll be discussions when we get back into the WC paddock. We're going to move to Jacob Bame, who says the WEC is officially in its eighth season of competition, but it's also a revival of the World Sports Car Championship, which between 1982 and 1985 was run as the World Endurance Championship. Why aren't we in the 12th, 4 plus 4, or even in the 48th season, 40 plus 8? Is there an actual reason for this beyond having a 19-year hiatus? Was this matter discussed? back when the ILMC morphed into the WEC? And if so, were there any politics involved in resetting the clock? Politics? In motorsport? How very dare you, sir? <laughs> and, uh, um, I think the answer is, it's just simpler this way. I don't think there's any other reason uh, to add other than it's just simpler this way. It would be, I guess, akin to Formula 2, uh, F2, and whether or not you... Um, offer that as a continuation through Formula 3000 and GP2, etc., etc. History is a wonderful thing. Uh, season 8 is uh, the way that it's being uh, branded uh, this season. That gets us away from trying to remember which year we're in and which year we're going to. Um, but uh, the answer is, I don't think there's any great conspiracy about it. I just think it's neater and simpler this way. Certainly, uh, nobody's forgotten the glory days back then. And, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, we build on those glory days with what, you know, people are trying to do with those big events, the way they're presented. Uh, but in terms of the modern era of the FI World Endurance Championship, uh, I think the answer is they're looking to write their own history. And I think that's a worthy cause. Let's just hope they can do more and more of that. All right, we are getting to the finish of your beloved category. Uh, let's see, where shall we go? We've already kind of sort of covered the Peugeot thing, so thanks for sending that in. Edgar Sanchez Brambilla, or Brambilla, I should say. There's no, it's not a double L, making that a Y in Spanish, I believe. So we're going to go to the final. Here, coming from Brandon Bird, who says, any word on how they plan to slow the grandfathered LMP1s down? I believe referring to the move to hypercar. And also we have one from Brian Cohn. Why do the OEMs not apply more or all the pressure on the ASO and FIA and IMSA to come to their senses and make one top level class that doesn't cost 200 million or 50 million or even 25 million a year. Do they not understand that the very basic math that lowers budgets are easier to sell to manufacturers. And if they can get Lamar, Daytona, Sebring spot, et cetera, all in the same car, teams and manufacturers will dive in head first. It really isn't rocket science. Um, first and foremost, let's, let's address really briefly the issue of towering budgets. Um, I'm here to say, and I'm allowed to say this because it's not um, 
necessarily a family show. A lot of what was said and written about the towering budget supplied to LMP1 hybrid back in the day is total horseshit. It's as simple as that. The reality is that those budgets were driven not by the rulemakers, but by the competing uh, manufacturers. Uh, did that cause problems for others? Well, potentially it did. Toyota was spending far less, and Toyota's trajectory of R&D wasn't that far behind, was it? So it was the choice of the manufacturers that were involved. No one was telling them to spend that kind of money. If you are presenting a platform that is involving rapid development of um, new technology, as it was in terms of the battery technology, etc., that was served up, that gave us those spectacular racing in the middle of the decade between the three manufacturers involved, then yes, you can absolutely guarantee that's going to cost more money. Uh, and you also need to address, uh, by the way, there, the two things. One, competition and particularly winning is absolutely, you know, at the core of what we're trying to do with motorsport. But also involved here is the value to those OEMs, those original equipment manufacturers, of the R&D they get from the developments they're forging, perfecting, and uh, obviously uh, displaying in their racing programs. And there's so, so many examples through that very short period of time of just exactly what leaps and bounds were made uh, and then have been used and displayed by the uh, manufacturers involved ever since including Porsche, of course, who went on a victory tour with the amazing technology they managed to actually forge through that uh, that program. They got effectively a year's further publicity, even though they weren't racing the car. So um, I think the answer here is yes, absolutely. Um, the uh, OEMs are pushing for what they believe is, is a more high-value proposition. Yes, everybody absolutely gets it, but please, please, please do not see this in terms of the goodies and the baddies. What you've got here are people just trying to make this work. And the problem when you do that is difficult enough anyway when you've got all these kind of uh, these movable objects in terms of the OEMs, etc., etc. When you add into that uh, a manufacturer, sorry, a motor industry globally that is moving as quickly as it currently is, it's an absolutely nightmarish prospect to get a rule set nailed down uh, that is going to be relevant to one side, let alone the other side, and let alone both together. Uh, it has not been a smooth path towards hypercar, and it absolutely has not been a smooth path towards DPI 2.0 either, because when you get more than one person in a room to discuss it, there's going to be disagreements, there's going to be differences in priorities, differences in levels of readiness, differences in what they've already got on the shelf they can use, differences in the kind of use of the partners they're going to bring to uh, the program. It is tough, and it has never, ever been as tough as it currently is, because I think they sense what I'm hearing in your question that you sense um, the, uh, you know, here, Brian, and I will deal with Brandon's point about uh, in a moment, that this might be their last chance to get this one right in the current era. Uh, I think they do sense that, and I'm hearing in the kind of quiet conversations I have away from what's quotable that there are movements towards that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I think that we'll say again something we talked about last week here, MP, the appointment of John Duden at the top of IMSA with his experience of doing a lot with a little, relatively speaking, I think is a genius stroke from IMSA. 
Um, and I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see how John's injection into that process uh, is it impacts the process as a whole. As for uh, Brandon's question, any word on how they plan to slow the grandfathered LMP1, uh, LMP1s down? I can tell you absolutely no idea at the moment, but I would be very surprised indeed if that didn't mean some form of power restriction and weight, potentially. You can play a little bit with the uh, the cars with weight. Um, yet to be seen, and it's a conversation I need to have with someone far smarter than I am, and I'm looking at a couple of guys at the moment as those uh, those prospects when we get to Shanghai, what could be done with error restriction as well. So let's wait and see with that one, but it is a considerable chunk that would be taken out of the potential of those cars. Is it time for him, sir? I believe so, and I just wanted to add on to your fun note of John Doonan. Spoke with him last night after his first day at work as IMSA's new president. Learned my favorite fact of the week so far. The 17-year Mazda executive turning up for his first day at work in Daytona Beach, given his new company car, Alexis. So I thought that was just, uh, I thought that was pretty hilarious. Yeah, that, uh, that, that was my favorite little thing. Oh, dear me. Bless him. A delight to, to see him kind of settling in. I think we're going to see uh, a quiet, considered early approach. But I, I, I expect to see some some fundamental changes emerging in terms of the outlook and the outputs that we see. And I think we're going to see them pretty soon. Well, there we go. All right. You are the chooser. Where are we going? Well, well, we're going to start with a story that broke as we were actually uh, recording last week's show. It's the first opportunity our listeners have had to respond to it. And that was the confirmation of what I know you wrote some time ago was a near definite, the departure from Corvette Racing of Yang Magnuson. We've got Bob Ta- uh, Bobcat Dad and uh, Adam Bowman, amongst others, asking questions along the lines of, do you see uh, foresee a future season uh, long drive for Jan in the oncoming IMSA season? Is he in active discussions with teams there? Any word on where he might be headed? Do not assume, by the way, before we get into this one, that IMSA is the only place he might be found. I have heard that there are, I shouldn't say some, I've heard of one serious and one maybe less so, but one serious DPI team that uh, would love to have his services decline on naming the team right now um heard more on the gtd side so i would be i would be very surprised if yen is not in a car for at minimum the naec rounds where things get a little bit troublesome is the timing of things uh have it on fairly good account graham and our dear listeners to the cooper tires and justice brothers sponsored Weekend Sports Car Show, that internal policy prevented Yan from alerting the world that he could be employed uh, before his final laps were turned for the team at Petit Le Mans. And if those are the, the strictures that he's under, then that's that. But it definitely hurts, you could say, if we're into the second week of October in a very short off season, knowing the cars are on track first week of January, 
for the roar. It just leaves driver like Yan not a lot of time to try and find another seat, full-time seat. And beyond the time, it's maybe more a case of most business is getting done August and September in terms of who's driving what, even though those things might not be announced. So the ability to place yourself on the job market, let folks know that you can be had, uh, I think that's where a bit of frustration might have set in a bit. Uh, So anyways, uh, I hope that he can obviously find something that he enjoys. Just we'll be curious to see Graham if due to the limited time and also the lateness of having that availability known, if he might be limited to more of an NA or I should say MEC Michelin endurance cup, uh, long race type program than a full season one. Fair point. I mean, as an expansion of that point, Ryan Terpstra, I, Ryan, uh, actually asked the question, is Jordan Taylor, obviously mentioned by more or less everybody as being Jan's direct replacement in the squad, is he actually already a GM factory driver? Uh, Ryan says he believes he was a few years ago. Hmm. Good question. Yeah. I mean, throw me a softball here, Ryan. What the heck, man? I mean... (laughs) Sorry, I uh, I couldn't couldn't uh, resist. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way: we have pure factory in terms of Corvette racing. We know that without a doubt, those are straight up and down General Motors factory drivers. We know that he was a part of that program. Why was he a part of that program? I was competing in GM machinery at his father's team. I don't know truly if he's under contract to GM, but I can say that his father with, you know, 20 plus, however many 30 years of alignment with GM for the most part, there's been a little, you know, a kudzu Mazda here and a Ferrari 333 SP there. But for the most part, the Taylors have been a GM family uh, probably right around the time Jordan was born. So, I would say that in terms of slotting him in to replace Magnuson, it would be less of looking outside, truly outside, and more having someone that they're very familiar with. Obviously, in recent years, being one of the leaders and a champion representing the Cadillac brand in DPI. So, can't say as for contract status, who has held that, uh, whether it's been his father or if he also has a second, call it personal services contract, with GM, which many drivers do with their respective manufacturers, but I would not view him as a, a non-GM affiliated driver stepping into a Corvette. They do. So another driver, uh, actually, subject of listener curiosity, comes from Tom uh, Wellful. Uh, does Carl Marcelli factor in anyone, uh, anywhere in WeatherTech next year, as far as we're aware, race winner in the Michelin Cup and WeatherTech but seems to get overlooked? Or is it just him? He's just a deplorable person. I mean, I'm surprised <laughs> he ever got a seat to begin with. <laughs> no, uh, Tom, uh, I've kind of been wondering the same thing. Uh, Kyle, yeah, that guy is really fast, has come in from the, you know, more the pro-am model than a straight-up, you know, been on the path to Formula One, IndyCar, or whatever since I was two years old route, I thought super proved himself a ton. 
and having seen him do very good things, win races, what, within the last year or so in IMSA, uh, in GTD, I would have expected him, although you know, I think he's been viewed more as a am who might be able to bring money type than uh, who are we hiring to drive for a scenario. I think that might be the limiting factor. I'm not saying it's accurate, but that's just the impression that I've had. So, yeah, I A, we don't have enough Canadian drivers in IMSA, uh, especially in the WeatherTech Championship. And while, you know, I guess we have some representation, good representation, the FAF Motorsports team, for example, young Scott Hargrove, I'd love to see Kyle back. And I wish I could give you a great answer as to why he hasn't been uh, more embraced in a pro-am scenario to keep that career moving forward, knowing what he did in, you know, the, the former prototype challenge class, but also GTD in particular. So bit of an odd one to me, Tom, and maybe as I find time, I should reach out and inquire with the young lad. Expanding on the kind of the, the driver interest with Jan and with Jordan and Carl as well, uh, Lance Snyder asked the question, could this be one of the worst years in recent memory to be a gold-rated driver who does not have a contract in hand as of now? Yes. Let's move on to the next question. Yes. Oh, it's a yes. <laughs> it is. It's, it's yes. It's 100%, isn't it? It's, it's, you, know, you, you called this very early, MP. It wasn't last week. It was weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks ago that we've got so many talented guys at the moment where there are a lot of unknowns in terms of their immediate future um to the point where i am expecting to see some faces which you're probably more familiar with racing in europe next year um than uh, you know i think there's more possibilities of them coming my way if you like rather than your way uh at present and that's that's quite sad uh because you know nothing wrong whatsoever with the product of uh, IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, it's just that, as we keep saying it, this cyclical thing to do with um, with sports car racing worldwide. And at the moment, the pendulum is a bit of a downswing at the moment for uh, IMSA ahead of what we expect to be an upward swing in a couple of years' time. Um, okay, one from that damn weasel. <sighs> Might yeah. graduate to darn weasel if you're nicer, but we'll we'll stick with damn for right now. Okay. Two-part question for both of you. With more manufacturers seemingly only wanted to commit to into DPI programs, seemingly only wanted to commit to DPI programs on the condition the class gets adopted worldwide, could their influence force that to happen by 2022? And would budgets rise if DPI became a global formula? So it's an expansion on what we've just discussed, isn't it, in the uh, – ACO rules side, but the influence coming from teams and manufacturers otherwise might have committed in North America. I think you are spot on, Monsieur Wiesel. It's not a... I might have overstated things a little bit last week. I don't know. There are certainly some DPI 2.0 aspirants who are sticking hard and heavy to the if you want us to come play you need to get that door to Lamont open there there are some but there's also quite a few who would love that would really like that but it is not a an either or scenario for them so i think we might see more dpi manufacturers who just say okay we are committed to imsa 
This is the market that matters most to us, the U.S., in doing the sports car racing and prototypes. We're going to do that. We're not happy if the door to Le Mans happens to be closed, but we're not going to let the ACO and FIA's uh, WEC's stupidity regarding a common or embraced prototype formula relationship, something. We're not going to let that stupidity limit our desire to market and promote what we do in competition in the USA. So I, I can't tell you the exact percentage, how many manufacturers are Lamar or bust and how many are, meh, we really like it, but it's not a deal breaker. But just from what I've heard informally, they're more in that latter category who will go forward, whether Lamar is on the table or not as a realistic thing. As for budget, I don't know if the ability to go to Lamar would enhance an annual budget being made available to a DPI manufacturer. I know it would increase for sure because they would need more money to go. But hey, now that Lamar is a thing you can do, we're just going to lavish you with more money in general. Probably would not expect that. Okay. A couple more, three more, in fact, before we uh, crack on through her general and our fun uh, section. How will John Doonan approach the issue of GTD numbers, asked Mike Christoph, with his change of leadership, what can be done to rebuild the GT Daytona grid? Uh, says here, John Doonan seems to have a good sense of what the lower rungs of racing need to succeed. Can anything be done to reduce costs and attract more teams? Interesting a lot of interesting stuff in here, Mike, because there are some things that can definitely be influenced by IMSA's new president. Others that I would say he can influence, but on a longer time frame and with more radical changes required. So if we look at rebuilding some of the losses, I would expect that among Dunan's first items on his to-do list coming into his first week as IMSA's president, it would be reaching out to some of those departing, disenfranchised, thinking of leaving types. Uh, Magnus Racing and John Potter come to mind. Uh, Ben Keating comes to mind. He's already obviously commissioned a a new full-time program and is competing in it. But how could we get you back? What could we do? Not saying that Doonan's predecessor, Scott Atherton, did not or would not have asked similar questions, but I would say, Mike, that Doonan's, Doonan's heartfelt way of doing things might be received in a different manner. So not saying we're going to get Ben Keating back. Uh, who knows if Magnus will stay or go shut down again? Who knows? They've stayed, they've gone to World Challenge when they were mad at IMSA rulings, which I fully agree with. They've come back, they've not had what they've wanted in terms of success with uh, their most recent manufacturer or, or previous manufacturer. And Again, it's an optional thing for Potter. He enjoys this, but ultimately he's playing. It's not uh, not something that... You know, he's in business and his whole life will collapse if Magnus Racing is not in existence. Nonetheless, 
I think someone like Doonan can do a lot of positive stuff in trying to keep some of those who are on the fence possibly and maybe go out and court some who are not in the in the class right now since Mazda has been, I believe, in just about every racing category on the planet. So I would look to some of those relationships, maybe folks competing in World Challenge uh, who might have a GT3 car to come and consider. I uh, would also extend that even further to GT4 TCR. Not saying he would be trying to cherry pick from the other series, but uh, I would definitely say that if you're new to the job and you have relationships elsewhere, it'd be strange not to reach out and say, hey, just want to make sure you have my new contact information in case you ever need anything. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, so there's that part. Mike, I would say on the cost side, yeah. yeah I believe I've said this before, Graham, uh, on the show here within the last couple of months. Looking at what IMSA has done with its LMP2 class for 2020, and that is taking some of the big expensive races off the calendar, reducing the overall uh, the overall number of rounds for LMP2, still keeping the 24 hours of Daytona on the board as an optional non-points race, knowing that that can be a, an event. Not only is it prized, a lot of folks want to go and get themselves a nice Rolex watch for winning, but it's a an event that, unlike most others, teams can actually sell, make a profit on, in terms of extra drivers, potentially uh, more sponsors too. So I think if I'm offering advice, I'm doing a very specific uh, all-owners meeting, all-GTD owners meeting. That's the thing I would recommend for Dunan to do quickly. Hey, want to get in the room with all of you. And if we can sit down in person, great. If not, we can do a teleconference for those who can't make it. I need to spend <clears throat> a couple hours with you guys getting your thoughts, men and women, team owners, getting their thoughts, things that are working, things that aren't, things that are scaring them, things that are making them consider stepping away or reducing the the scope of their program because of the finances, getting some input on things that could be changed to reduce the annual budgets and also floating the idea of, hey, what if we were to carve two or three rounds? I realize you'd be doing less overall racing per year, but if you're telling us that the costs to compete are getting too high and the manufacturers whose cars you are buying are not selling them to you at vastly reduced prices, if some of the fixed costs are too high, vehicle consumables, travel, all these things. If it's too much, then what consensus can we come to that's going to make everyone say, all right, that's smart. We've taken 20%, maybe 25% off of our annual budget. This is a more sustainable thing. So that might not happen overnight. Mike, obviously, IMSA has a schedule in place for next season, but I would say Dunan would be wise to get those GTD owners in a room now and start planning on whatever they agree to for 21 that is going to not just maintain the level they're at now, uh, but actually restore some of its losses. Uh, to finish off, IMSA, we've got uh, the IMSA questions. We've got one looking forward, another one looking back. Looking forward, Tom Pendergrass 
uh, is asking, says he was digging through some old ALMS results, whatever floats your boat, Tom, um, realised the speed differential uh, between the Re- old Rebellion, Dyson, Muscle Milk, LMP1s, and the ALMS GTC class, the 997 Porsche Cup cars, are pretty similar to the differential between modern DPIs and GT4 cars. With IMSA grids seeming to be on a bit of a downward trend, could, he asks, we see GT4 added into the big show and the Michelin Pilot Challenge moving to an LMP3 and TCR class structure in the somewhat near future. That has been floated. The mixing of training level prototypes and training level tin tops. I think it'd be kind of fun. I definitely think there's going to be more carnage, which I've said before when this question's come up. Closing speeds, definitely different with a Liger, uh, Norma, whatever, uh, blasting along at a crazy amount of speed, diving in on a a little Hyundai or a VW or whatever it might be. I think that could happen. Uh, the GT4 angle, again, you know, that seems to be undergoing the growth today, Graham, that we saw not too long ago from GT3, where it seemed like, man, there's just they're all over the place. Uh, GT3 seems to have tapered off a bit, uh, knowing that last weekend was the season finale for World Challenge in Las Vegas. Various the GT4 grid wasn't massive there, but there's certainly a pretty decent car count. GT3 seemed to be pretty good, but not amazing. There's a number of these cars. I think another thing that might happen here, and I know this is coming back to Mike's question a little bit while also trying to answer Thomas's, we'll see what the satisfaction level is with IMSA team owners and whether they believe that maybe going over to World Challenge would present better bang for the proverbial buck, or vice versa. If we're just looking at the number of cars, Graham, the the physical number of GT3 cars and GT4 cars on the ground living in North America, there's enough to make one series explode in numbers. Right now, kind of sort of half and half and i realize that gt4 isn't competing in the weather tech championship but there's a potential here for a really big spike if folks shifted in one direction or the other so right now it feels like we're kind of split down the middle almost but as for speed differentials and such you know you try and strategize these things strategery is involved of well will it be safe will it not be safe the the reality is that comes down to licensing that comes down to making sure that the driver is coming in and competing even though we're talking training series and lmp3 and tcrs listed here gt4 provided we aren't talking someone who is slow or inept or just only have their only qualification is a checkbook provided you filter and make sure that the talent trying to grow and raise and improve also noting that there are some you know pro caliber drivers involved too but if you do the work up front and vet those who are going to compete you'd be giving yourself the best chance of closing speeds and such not being an issue Agree completely. The one other thing I just to add into the mix is if you're going to put a class into 
the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, call it GT4, you're going to be paying a new bill, and that's the bill to SRO who own GT4. And therefore, if you're going to call it GT4 and not GS, then you need uh, to be paying someone a fee to do that. Uh, them's the facts. Uh, final question, IMSA. And it's a look back here. It comes from Pete R. Hernandez. Says, Marshall, uh, Pete was thinking back to the Grand Am days. Don't do that! Of the mid-2000s and their huge grids consisting of just two classes, DP and GT. Why did Grand Am during this uh, era have such success with field sizes? He's the first to admit those DPs were pretty ugly. They were ugly, not pretty. Um, but it seemed like a lot of teams could afford to field them, produce competitive racing without BOP. What do you think uh, doing away the hurdles, such as their mandatory manufacturer's fees, could help spark bigger grids in both classes? Do you think dumbing down the technology for GTs and DPIs would help bring back smaller teams to build grid sizes up again? Loves the high direction DPI2 is heading in. High tech direction is heading in, but is afraid of the dwindling numbers of prototypes and GTs we'll be seeing in 2020. Good question. We yeah, have questions. Couple of great items in here, Pete, to close our IMSA category A. Having competed as a race engineer in the 2005 Grand Am Rolex Series Daytona prototype class with the Park, no, not Park Place. Was it Park? No, I forget the name of the team. Uh, whatever it was. Um, CB Motorsports, that's what it was. Chris Bingham. Uh, yeah. So I love me some Bill Riley. I love uh, Bob Riley. Love the Rileys. Love Dave Klim and some of the others who made Daytona prototypes and other cars. It was a trash concept. It was the intentional dumbing down, as you mentioned here, of technology. It was stripping the DNA of sports car racing out of sports car racing in the name of making cars readily available to pretty much anyone that wanted to compete and having also worked in the former Indy racing league where the same thing was more or less done where there was a rival to the series that was high tech and highly loved and the effort by the Indy racing league and I would say darn near identical effort by Grand Am with the DP. It was all about reducing costs, lowering technology, making the entry point financially much friendlier. That's certainly not a bad thing. The, the entry point number I cannot criticize anyone about that. But in sports car racing in particular, it's not as if it has to be crazy high tech. But ultimately, what I think the this facet of motor racing has been since the dawn of racing has been some form of technical expose, some sort of re- revelation. Hey, here's how we this brand does this. Let us show you that in a unique way. Let us show you in competition how we are different from our competitors. Obviously, there's been even more non-factory related sports car racing throughout forever. And that isn't something where manufacturers are directly plugged in. You can go and buy a car from the dealership and convert it 
and go race it yourself on a club racing level. You can do pro rate again, all kinds of options, but at the core sports car racing, as I think of it, not saying it's accurate, but that's how I think of it has been a place where the vehicle matters more than maybe some other forms of racing and the core identity of the manufacturer that builds and creates that car matters. And so what we had with DP was this bizarre thing where, although there were names slapped on it, there was some badging going on here, here, there. It was truly just sticker engineering. You stripped away all that. And the rules were so, so restrictive that while today's BOP was not part of the program, the rules were so tight and things were so basic that major differentiation was not really possible. (laughs) You were not going to get one car that was just so much better than the others or one engine that was so much better than the others because the rules did not allow such a thing to happen. And so I just come back to this, Pete, in thinking of, of course, like the IRL, there are a ton of those cars sold. There were some very big grids for a while. And it's because anybody who ever wanted to do it could go get one and do it. Usually, and I speak from experience, having worked for some crappy IRL teams, and maybe I was part of what made it crap, but having worked for some of them, having worked for a crappy DP team, if you like excellence associated with your motor racing, going low-tech, going simple, going very affordable, it often reduces or removes that filter that brings in, or, or I should say keeps out, a lack of excellence. Also creates some great opportunities. There's some good teams that came forth from the IRL and DP, but I would say by and large, Uh, The fact that anybody could get one, anybody could drive one, at least when I think of pro racing, that's not what I'm aiming for. And I apply that, Graham, across all the other forms of sport that I enjoy. If anybody can suit up tonight and take part in the NBA season opener or hit the pitch this weekend and whatever soccer slash football match, sure, it's a dream a fantasy thing hey i wish i could play i wish i could try and you know kick a goal that'd be amazing yeah but you know what i shouldn't be out there my my modest talent which might be enough to get me a a license or credential to be there okay cool but uh, i don't know uh that's just what i think of here pete so of course it blew up because anybody could buy one and they were anyone could run one Anyone could engineer one. Uh, the parts were so reliable. The things were super heavy. They weren't, the car wasn't powerful. It did not overly consume anything. You know, you weren't blowing through this and that and the other because you're going a million miles an hour and using up brakes and gear ratios and all these things. It was the perfect expansion formula. It just had no one that loved it or cared for it maybe outside some of the people who were competing in it. It had no fans. Uh, the TV ratings were abysmal. It just, it same, same with the Indy racing league. So, uh, yeah, 
not sad that it went away. Don't think that going back to that does anything for anyone. And I think if, if anything, there's always that heavy line, Graham, you have to look at. Are we a sport that is a true sporting entity? We're here for sport to be the best that we can. Or are we just trying to put on a show without really caring about the players in the show, hoping to entertain someone? Uh, that's what comes to mind here. It was a thing. It grew. It just never had a following. And I think it's because most people looked at it and said, no, this is like a bad movie. Show me where the good movies are playing. It's an interesting point. Uh, because We've talked before, we've talked about media interest in sports car racing, about that differentiation between participation events and events that you can actually promote. One thing that uh, that Daytona prototypes absolutely 100% achieved was to completely destroy the international relevance of its major events. Uh, the Daytona 24 Hour Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona became a dead zone for media, certainly for international media, for a decade. And I remember the point where I think that began to dawn on them because that's the point at which they began to reach out we had a delegation from Daytona came along in from memory 2011 um, to the Autosport show in the UK, headed up by Alana France, who's I think still the head of the international relations side at, um, at Daytona, and sat down with a number of people included in that very small gathering uh, were myself, were John Hindoff and his good lady Eve Hewitt, and together put together a program with them that saw international media invited back. And there were you know, a number of issues, but not least was the, the fact that they, those Daytona prototypes. And I can tell you right now, 2012 at Daytona was the very first time that I'd ever seen a Daytona prototype uh, actually turning laps uh, in anger. And bear in mind, by that point, I'd been the editor of what, you know, many would argue, it'd mostly be wrong, it was the predominant uh, sports car focus, solely sports car focus publication on earth at that stage. Um, and yet we weren't going to those races. And we weren't going to those races because you know what? You're absolutely right, Marshall. Beyond the people who participated in that championship, it simply didn't have the pull. Uh, we tried. The numbers were woeful. We moved away from it. And it became you know, a continental-level championship that was principally, not exclusively, but principally of interest only to the people competing within it. And I'll share this to close. Then we need to jump to one other category because we've got about 10, 12 minutes left okay. by the time yep. I'm done talking here. In 2006, 2007, I started doing some American Le Mans series coverage for Speed, Speed Network, their uh, speed.com site. Did a lot of really good things in 2007 there, and this was all on Speed's dime. Uh, a lot of videos, a lot of in-car stuff, just you know, things that at least at the time no one else was really doing. And at the end of the year... The ALMS came to Speed.com, although Speed was their formal and official television partner. The digital arm really was, you know, there was no formal business links or direct business links. ALMS came to Speed.com, and I flew out for a meeting there, and they said, hey, we would like to have you guys at every round. Could you come and do that? And so they struck a good little business deal, and 
Good for them. That's what I did in 2008. Covered every round of the American Le Mans series. Pretty fortunate for me just because it turned out to be, you know, 2006-ish a little bit, but 2007, 2008, really the golden era of the LMS. So super fortunate. I guess I did a good job, Graham, maybe too good of a job in 2008 because Speed's biggest contract was NASCAR and aired lots of NASCAR races, all kinds of NASCAR TV shows and talk shows and analysis shows. Well, NASCAR also had this sports car property named Grand Am. And so knowing that they were the they were Speed's primary benefactor, <laughs> they said, yeah, that AOMS stuff, that's great. Um, yeah, no, we want you to do that for us on your website in 2009. Huh? So apparently they put down a number that I guess was even better. And I didn't get any of that. I mean, I was paid a salary, but regardless, uh, Grand Am, having seen the really good stuff we did in 2008 covering the ALMS, and I think the really big gains and traction that was that came along with it, didn't like that and said, no, we're the ones that give you guys the most money. And I know that we don't really give any money for Grand Am, but we're going to just call that part of our NASCAR deal with you. And no, uh, that Pruitt guy is going to, cover our series in 2009 most depressing year in my life as a reporter graham ever and uh, uh not as and i thoroughly enjoyed portions of it uh and you know the people running teams and driving cars they're all the same people right so it's not about the people it's just the hey i'm going to New Jersey Motorsports Park to cover a Grand Am race, and it's 103 Fahrenheit. And these cars, the pro, the DPs all have front radiators and no air conditioning. And drivers are being truly pulled out of the cars. In some instances, there were a couple drivers who were pulled out of their cars by the crew members because they did not have the strength to get out, having wilted with the furnace-like heat and during the f- broadcast, they're showing footage of drivers getting IV fluids <laughs> pumped into them uh, just to try and compete. Uh, and, and anyways, but all that being done, I don't know what the number is, brother. If there were 3,000 people that showed up, I mean, there could have been 1,500. I don't know. But there's just nobody. And then you go to the next round at, you know, VIR or wherever. Who doesn't love VIR? It's amazing. There are some people there, but uh, not much. And this is all coming off of 2008 where it seemed like you could barely walk or stand uh, because ALMS was just flooded with fans. So it was, yeah, 2009, I can say with no question, was the most work-like year as a reporter for me to date because... While I enjoyed the people, uh, the form of racing I was covering was just not excellent. And it was purely a case of, well, this is what we've been hired to do. I've got to, d- to go do it, uh, whether I enjoy it or not. And I just need to make sure that's what I'm doing. And I sure can't wait to get back. And so knowing that I'd been siphoned off for Grand Am, uh, that's where hiring John DeGeese to look after uh, the ALMS in my absence was done. And um, so that's where that story kind of 
wandered from. But yeah, uh, I can confirm it was a lonely thing. <laughs> oh, did they did they remember to open the gates after they let the teams in? There's kind of nobody here. So yeah, that's what I recall. All right, uh, ten minutes or so. Where are we going for our final category A? We're going to rapid fire through this. Rapid fire. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten questions. That means 60 seconds per question. Penske Bathurst uh, penalty from Ram Terpstra. Is this the right show for this question? No, it isn't. Uh, have you any feelings about the penalty handed down to the DGR team Penske after their supercars team orders debacle? This is Fabian Coulton, I think, wasn't it? It was basically instructed to hold back for uh, Pitts. Um, it was a dumbass move. Absolutely, they should have been penalised. We'll move on from that. And frankly, should have been removed from the race for it. Whether or not it had a knock-on effect for the chances of their lead car to actually win the race it will be open to speculation on uh, social media for the rest of time. Uh, this one for you, though, MP. Blomp on America, which we should schedule and going pro-am from Justin. Um, the Blompam Pirelli GT Challenge America something just announced a reduced schedule for 2020, says Justin, and will be strictly pro-am. Was this something the teams were asking for to reduce costs? He can't help but think there's more to it than just cost savings. This has been the SRO's grandest adjustment they've put in motion since they became the majority stakeholder in the series. So the pro-pro thing, uh, which I think many of us loved, uh, Cadillac Racing, for example, a fine player in that realm, uh, they ended up leaving because they were given the ultimatum of pro-am, non-factory, light factory, don't put it in our faces, or nothing, to which they said, no, that's not us, goodbye. Uh, Real-time racing. Also left. I realize they're back and they've had some great success. Really happy for Mike Headland and all that he's achieved. But they went away for a while because they, too, were hit with the, yeah, so you're a factory team with Acura. No, 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 no. So that's come back in a pro-am model. This, to me, as I perceive it, Justin, is simply the full SROification of this property they have taken control of beforehand. Uh, It was allowed to be pro-pro, a full factory deal. And, yeah, uh, I'm still unsure exactly what this is going to look like. I think like many teams. Hey, Bentley, uh, what does this truly look like? I know you might have someone that qualifies as an AM, but do we look at them as truly just a guy you plucked off the street? Or is this, you know, the perfect person via qualification? But we might say that all drivers are factory. Again, just... I'm not sure how they enforce this, maybe, is is the part that I'm a little bit uh, curious or fuzzy on right now. But, yeah, this, to me, just uh, comes across as the thing they've been pushing for since they took control. Uh, another really quick one. James Counter, given what they put out on track in the middle of the race at the VLN and N24, why not stick out Circuit Safari, Ring Taxi, DTM Taxi during the race? Uh, serious uh, answer is public liability uh, might seem like a very, very good idea. If you've been trackside, and I have during those races, it is pure motorized insanity out there. The thought that you could be on a bus watching those cars go by, well, over, under, past, or through, uh, I think it's just plain terrifying, James. But uh, I like the I like the kind of the general scheme and the vagueness of the idea, but the reality, I suspect, would be Fairly terminal in every single sense of the of the word and the phrase. Um, 
One caught your eye here, MP? Well, I mean, James threw in another one here asking about racetrack photographer etiquette. He says, you spoke Mm. about some abusing privileges in a previous episode. I don't remember what I said. Uh, Elaborate, please, for those of us who aren't photographers and don't get to spend enough time trackside. Uh, I mean, here's one that comes to mind, and it is something that the official series photographers tend to mention in every photo meeting. And it's intended for those who aren't full-timers, might just be coming out for the weekend, reporting, you know, shooting for the local newspaper, local whatever. Uh, And in some cases, those who have gotten credentials, we're not exactly sure why, uh, for outlets we've never heard of. And it's the, hey, uh, it seems like, you know, at many tracks, more uh, fencing is going up, more things are becoming off limits, the the open air space to shoot as you please just that's becoming less and less so if you come across a photo hole that being something where the uh, organizers have cut out some sort of quote window into a fence for you to shoot through unobstructed get your shots and move on don't camp out there what you find with the pros is they do just that because in their mind uh, they're working with from a clock there is a clock running during a practice session or a race, I need to get these shots from these vantage points of these specific cars, maybe some of its client stuff, Who know, whatever it is. There's always a, unless it's a 24-hour race, 12-hour, uh, Petit Le Mans okay, but even at the six-hour at the Glen, you're like, I don't know if I can get everything I want. There's never enough time during a practice session, during qualifying to get what you need uh, during many races as well. So what you get are the pros who are thinking, going to stand here for three minutes get what i need boom get down to this corner get over there walk over this bridge do this that and the other and for those who aren't on deadline and frankly aren't call it you know racing pros those are the folks james who may as well submit change of address forms because you would think they have they have truly decided to move into that photo hall and so there are times where if I'm near a photo hall and there are one or two others near, again, all within maybe 50 feet, I'll go down, get some angles, try and get some stuff that maybe a slightly different angle that you don't often see while knowing, oh, I probably want to pop into that photo hall real quick just to get a couple things. And so I'll keep an eye on who's there. So I'll try and do other things to kill time, seeing that it's full or with a person usually. And then after whatever amount of time, I'm like, okay, I got to go and go down there. I'll walk down and just stare at the person. And if they've been there for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, there'll come a point where I'll say, did you get what you need? Oh, well, I'm, I'm look, <laughs> I appreciate that you want to take photos. Keep in mind, you were at a photo meeting where you saw a lot of people. You're not the only guy here. Please keep in mind that if you haven't gotten what you need in this hole uh, in 10 or 15 minutes, come back later because those of us watching you fill this thing, it's not helping those who actually are working from a clock. The other thing I'd mention real quick too is, you know, as someone who's done this for a little while, you tend to kind of know the people who are real. And it's usually the folks where I'm like, I've never seen you. (laughs) I have no idea who you are. I have no idea who you work for. Uh, If you're the one kind of taking up the opportunity and and wasting everyone's time, we got a bit of a problem here. Pushing on, and uh, I've just spotted two or three. I can I can roll into the same kind of question-answer flurry here, 
We go for deleting one race car from history from David Schutt. Who introduced you to motorsports or who, uh, if you introduced to motorsports and uh, memories and stories of Bob Wallach. And the reason I'm going to put all of those together, this is my little story, is delete one race car from history. I wouldn't like to do any of that, but the one I guess I would choose is the Porsche 911 GT1. Why? Because it started the acceleration of development that basically destroyed BPR coming into FIGT, and that process started extremely quickly. Not that I hate the car. I don't. It's fantastic. Um, I was at the, uh, one of the very first races that car actually got involved with, which is a single car that dominated at Brands Hatch in the BPR in 1995. Is that right? Five or six? Um, but that would be the one because I think it just accelerated development in that process far, far too quickly. Why am I putting all that together? It's because James Counter's question um, who am I most pleased that I introduced to motorsport? I'm most pleased I introduced my son to motorsport because it was through our following of that series that I am standing here in the dark, uh, looking at my wife making dinner down the other end of the garden. She's not in the garden, but I'm at the other end of the garden. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, I introduced him to motorsport. We gravitated towards sports cars, and that's why I do what for a living what I do now. The final part of it is, do I have memories to share with Bob Wallach? The answer is, I don't. I've never met Bob. I never met Bob Wallach. I don't know if you did, MP, but I never did meet Brilliant Bob. I did not. Watched him race many times. Never got a chance um, to I, meet him, though. Um, yeah. I mean, I've done the pilgrimage to the site of, I'm afraid, the tragic accident where we met his death. Um, uh, he's just outside Sebring. I've been there more than once, um, but uh, aware of the legend that was brilliant, Bob, but never actually met him. It was at that sort of time in history where I was moving from one side of the fence to the other, uh, 2000, 2001 for me. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, another legendary driver taken from us, and in his case, in hugely unfortunate and bizarre circumstances. But uh, there you go. So three cleared up with one. I'm, I'm leaving one, and it's Jacob Bame's question for the very last when we've got moments to go. Yes, I've got about one minute to go. So do we do Jacob's or do we save that for next week? Uh, let's do it right now. Jacob Bame, you can pick any sports car racing driver to be your personal chauffeur for the rest of your life in a road legal car if you're choosing. Keep in mind, you can't relieve the driver from their position, change the car. Who and what car do you choose? I have the answer here. It's not my answer. It's the answer. It's a long wheelbase Audi A8. It's a fantastic car to be in the back of. The driver is, of course, Christophe Bouchou. <laughs> Why? Because... I would have a video camera system mounted in that car permanently. It would be the most viewed YouTube uh, uh, channel on the planet within moments because it would be hilarious. He would get there quickly. He'd get there very loudly. And it would be a blinding success on YouTube for all of those reasons. You would learn how to swear in French. It would be a, a fabulous thing to behold. Any different answers to that one, MP? Uh, just Alan McNish, because I like the idea of him and a little chauffeur's cap and, and just being subservient to me. It that would be amazing. It, it would be a very little cap as well. Oh, but, uh, Lord. Very, Mr. Goodwin, that's a yep. show. Well, hey. We got to say goodbye, and we'll say hello next week. But we should also say thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for making this possible. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin. This is The Week in Sports Cars. Until next week.